Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Ron Gross, sitting in for Chris Hill. Joining me today are senior analysts Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Gentlemen, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, good, Ron. Earnings season just starting to heat up. Today, we're going to talk big banks, airlines, and video games. But we begin with everybody's favorite macroeconomic metric, inflation. <laughs> Andy, you can't turn on the news without hearing about inflation. And whether it's transitory or more permanent, PPI, CPI, there's a lot of macroeconomic noise out there. So my question to you is, what should investors be thinking about here, and should they be concerned? Well, I think from, Ron, from the expectations for the investor side, I think inflation matters the most when I start seeing it really creep up in employee costs, salaries, because employee costs now are somewhere, gosh, you it continues to increase 20 40 50% or so depending on the company of uh, of of revenues and it gets to be a very uh, sizable amount if we start seeing increases in employee costs now the cpi the consumer price index the the core which strips out the uh, volatile uh, food and energy prices has been running very hot as it has has been reported it was up 5.4% in june year over year that's the fastest in 13 years we're starting to see an uptick in expected inflation from Consumers, so people are starting to feel this as well. But that's the kind of stuff that Jay Powell is talking about being a little bit more transitory, a little bit more temporary. Things that go into like auto use auto costs are, are, are a big part of this increase, up, up to a third of the increase we're seeing recently. So, so we see a lot of that conversation. But what I, th- I personally think in, in investors need to continue to focus on is how do companies manage their employee costs? We know in hiring is very tight right now. We know there's a lot of job openings out there that are not getting filled. We're starting to see uh, people have it, companies having to start increasing their their salaries and actually offer bonuses to recruit people into the workforce. So as that starts to work, that could actually hit a little bit of the margin side for companies. So I think investors should be focused on that. What we're hearing right now, I think that is, for, for the most part, will kind of ebb and flow with the reopening of the economy. Uh, but longer term, it's, the, it's, it's more of that focus on the employee cost that I'm looking at. Jason, before the show, you were talking about inflation, um, like we do about some of other macroeconomic indicators, and, and that it's maybe sometimes best to just ignore them um, <laughs> and just stick to your knitting. Um, is that is that your, your thinking here, your guidance for investors? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, th- I think that ultimately the way we look at it, and obviously we take a much longer uh, term perspective here at the Fool than perhaps the traditional Wall Street banks, and so I think that affords us the ability to be patient and to not worry so much about the ebb and flow of things like inflation. I compare it often to uh, foreign currency effects, right? I mean, we'll see foreign currency effect adjustments in, in earnings releases quarter in and quarter out. That doesn't necessarily mean uh, that they matter all that much because over the longer period of time. They tend to kind of net out, right? They tend to be a wash over over uh, over longer periods of time. Now, that doesn't mean it of just to, to ignore inflation because those things do matter because they can impact the types of businesses that you might invest in. Uh, but I wouldn't let it be something that necessarily dictates uh, your investment strategy in the short run, right? Still stay long term focused, and it shouldn't be too much of a concern. 
I will say, Ron, that usually in rising inflation markets is a really good time to be a stock investor, or at least better than a lot of other assets, because those companies have flexibility to raise prices. Um, they have scale abilities. So, so don't let the inflation boogeyman kind of scare you out of uh, out of stocks. And I'll also add here just one more thing. I really like the way Buffett approaches this inflation thing. Just invest in good businesses. In good times and bad times, inflationary times, non-inflationary times, good businesses are good businesses, and they're going to do well over long stretches regardless of the economic climate. Spoken like a true fool. This week, a plethora of big banks reported earnings, everyone from Wells Fargo to Goldman Sachs. Jason, what stood out here to you? Any themes emerge? Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of interesting threads going into this bank's earnings season from interest rates to inflation, the state of the consumer, even investment banking. And so I don't think there were really many surprises, uh, but there were some interesting points to note. I think when we look at Bank of America as really the market leader on the consumer deposit side, they saw revenue down modestly, uh, 3.5% from a year ago. Now, investment banking fees played a little bit of a role in that, uh, which was a little bit odd given <laughs> the state of the market and all of these IPOs, but that's worth noting. Noting that pullback was from a record first quarter, so so it's a bit relative. Uh, but but net interest income was down six percent due to those low rates. Loan growth is still tepid. They see signs that that is coming back, and they they saw deposits rise fourteen percent. Uh, again, one of the themes there, they released $2.2 billion of credit reserves that were established uh, over the first half of last year, given the situation with COVID-19. Uh, and net charge-offs fell to a 25-year low. Mm -hmm. So, credit quality out there is really good, and that's great for Bank of America. Uh, you look at the other end of the spectrum, a bank that's been in the headlines a lot lately, Wells Fargo. Seems like things may be starting to turn around. Revenue up almost 11%. They were able to release $1.6 billion of those credit reserves. Uh, they, too, are seeing some challenges on the loan side, but deposits were up 17%. Uh, and then they were able to repurchase 35.3 uh, million shares. That was $1.6 billion worth of, worth of stock for the quarter. Efficiency ratio starting to come around. And remember, this is a bank that has been hindered by this asset cap. Right, regulators enforce this asset cap. They basically been told they can't grow. Now that hasn't been lifted yet, but we're getting closer because we're seeing signs that the bank is getting its, uh, you know, getting its books in order. So I think that we could be seeing a period of time where Wells Fargo starts to really change the conversation and become a little bit more of uh, of one of those opportunities in the banking space. On Wednesday, Delta Airlines reported its first profitable quarter since the fourth quarter of 2019, as travelers once again felt comfortable taking to the air. Investors seemed to initially get excited about the report. By the end of the week, it seemed, Andy, like much ado about nothing, uh, stock really not doing much. The report looked encouraging to me. What's your take? Yeah, so and the the airlines are off their their highs of, of the year, but air travel has come back. Um, U.S. vacation travel has recovered, according to Delta, just about fully uh, compared to a couple years ago. International travel kind of remains pressured um, from some of the travel uh, restrictions, but corporate and cargo are really showing some signs of life. So, looking at just some of the financial numbers for Delta, revenues um, were down almost fifty percent from a year ago, but that was up. The, they were up 76% from the first quarter this year. Um, better than the company guidance, they saw average daily net cash sales doubled relative to uh, to the, uh, the the quarter ago. Um, June travel accelerated, so as they kind of went through the quarter, they continued to see more and more uh, travel increase. Obviously, transatlantic
Atlantic and Trans-Pacific travel with real, real weak spots down, gosh, 85% and 87% from two years ago. So pre-pandemic, they still have not seen that trans business really come back. But but a bright spot in cargo shipments and revenues up 35% from two years ago. Domestic corporate travel grew from 20% base um, levels pre-pandemic in the first quarter to now 40%. And they expect in the next quarter, that will be back to 55 or 60%. So you are seeing, Ron, this corporate travel, which is so important for Delta, starting to come back. And from the surveys they They've done. They see more and more interest in their corporate partners signing up to travel again. That is now they expect those corporate partners expect to travel again. Um, uh, That's up to ninety five percent of those corporate partners expect to travel in the in the in the coming coming quarter. So that's all very good sign for for Delta. But still, obviously, challenges ahead. They did have that profitability. They are seeing more and more profits uh, starting to to show up. Um, But but they're not out of the not out of the woods yet. There's still a lot of challenges. Challenges for the airline companies and for Delta, especially, especially internationally. Corona beer had to deal with the coronavirus, and Delta is now dealing with the Delta variant, which they're <laughs> refusing to call the Delta variant, simply choosing to call it the variant. Is this does this have any real impact here, or are they just I mean, being extra cautious? Yeah, I think being extra cautious and some marketing there too. But hey, take the advantage. You know, never look a, a challenge in the in, in the face, and take advantage of everything you can get, especially when you're an airline business in this market. You need every little inch you can get. For sure. Earlier in the week, reports emerged that Netflix was considering adding video games to its service at no extra cost to the consumer. And Jason, streaming services are constantly looking for ways to distinguish themselves from the competition. Content is king. Do video games move the needle here, and will others simply follow suit? Uh, move the needle, that remains to be seen. But I, I do think it's always encouraging to see a business work to leverage its core competency. And in Netflix's case, its core competency's, competency is streaming, right? Now, that's streaming video, not games, but they are they are fairly similar. So, I think it's, it's something that makes sense for them to at least try. I think uh, the big question really is exactly how they plan to approach this. It sounds like the intention is for this feature to be additive, not something that is a separate charge or another core uh, offering from the Netflix brand, at least uh, early on. I think these are just uh, early on investments that we're seeing Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos make. Uh, and, and it's really all about taking Netflix to the next level, becoming a full-on media company. And investments in video have clearly paid off. They can try these investments in gaming. Uh, They're making some investments in podcasts. I mean, it all adds up. They're all very complimentary. And when you look at the market opportunity out there, just mobile gaming alone brought in $77 billion in revenue in 2020. So, even capturing a small portion of a large market opportunity can be good for business. And so, I would not hold this against them for trying. In fact, I think I would hold it against them if they didn't try, right? We don't want to see Netflix resting on its laurels. Coming up, we'll grab a taco and wash it down with an ice cold Pepsi. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money, Ron Gross sitting in for Chris Hill. On Thursday, United Healthcare reported results that were well above expectations, despite lower profits resulting from people seeking medical care that they had delayed during the pandemic. Jason, the post-pandemic impact was bound to happen, so putting that aside, how did these results look to you? 
Well, yeah, I, I know that United Health can be a bit of a polarizing idea given the ongoing debate regarding healthcare in general. But that said, this company is just so impressive in its scale and it has such a tremendous advantage in relation to their core business, which is essentially providing healthcare policies, right? And so, consequently, what we saw was another very strong quarter with revenue up 15%, $71.3 billion for the quarter. And Optum led the way with revenue of $38.3 billion and growth of 17.2%, operating earnings up 29% on the Optum side, which was really impressive. Uh, medical care ratio normalized back to 82.8% for the quarter. That was compared to 70.2% from a year ago. Very abnormal, given the situation we were going through all 2020. So, that was good to see. Uh, they did raise full-year guidance to a range of $18.30 to $18.80 per share. So, that puts the stock at around 22 times full-year estimates today. Fairly reasonable, I think, for for uh, such a dominant company in its space. Hearing them talk a lot more about using digital channels and investing a lot into their virtual care offerings, seeing extremely high patient satisfaction numbers from it all. They quoted 98% on the behavioral side, right? The behavioral care market, they're seeing 98% customer satisfaction. So I suspect we will continue to see more investments in virtual healthcare coming from this stalwart in healthcare space. PepsiCo reported very strong results earlier in the week and raised full-year guidance, sending the stock to an all-time high and the fastest sales growth in at least a decade. What's driving that growth? Yeah, it's really the away-from-home consumption is starting to show the signs of life again, Ron, as we all have been stuck behind our computers and at home and ordering Frito-Lay boxes, as I do in my family or our family does. Um, we're now starting to see the away-from-home market starting to kick back up. So, total sales up 20.5%. That was ahead of forecast. Organic sales up almost 13%. Um, earnings per share were up 27%. If you back out some of the currency effects, um, better than forecast. Overall volumes, Ron, up 8% across all their categories. They held or gained shares across many of the key global snacks and beverage markets they look at. Strong performance um, and execution really in the U.S. Um, convenience store, food service, those, again, away from home markets are starting to show, show some real excitement here. For Pepsi, Frito-Lay was strong. Pepsi North America was strong. Quaker, a little bit soft, Ron, because, again, not stocking the pantry like we may have done a year ago when we were in the middle of the of the pandemic. So overall, you know, you have a company that sells at 25 times earnings. You get a, almost a 3% dividend yield, very profitable, steady earnings growth. You're going to make some money in Pepsi. I own it myself, but I don't think it's going to, you know, really uh, shoot the lights out over the next five years, but it, it should do okay. I want to pivot a second to Coke. Seemingly not learning from history, Coke is changing the look and taste of one of their most popular soft drinks, Coke Zero. I feel like we've been through this before. It seems like Pepsi's better at sticking to their guns, sticking to their knitting, rather than tweaking what works. Uh, I know Jason is a Coke fan, or uh, specifically a Diet Coke fan. I don't know if you're a soda drinker, but if you are, Coke or Pepsi? Uh, gosh, well, it's it's. I drink Coke, even though I own Pepsi. I, I own Coca-Cola through my Berkshire Hathaway, <laughs> too. But, so, yeah, so I get them both, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick Coke out of the two. And, and why does Coke keep messing around with what works? It's very popular. It's literally one of their most popular beverages. They can't seem to rest on their laurels. Yeah, I guess so. I really like what Pepsi's doing with some of their acquisitions, Rockstar Energy, and they they bought um, SodaStream too, which is is, is a purpose driven uh, direction. They're trying to go to eliminate plastic use, single plastic usage. So I like that direction as well for Pepsi. Yeah, innovation rather than tweaking with with, with what already works makes sense to me. 
McCormick is looking for a taco czar. That's right. McCormick is hiring a director of taco relations to sign a four-month contract, which pays $100,000. And Jason, I know we're all fans of McCormick here, especially you're a fan of McCormick here, having recommended it several times. Is this real? Is this a joke? Where, where is this going? Uh, it, it seems to be real. Um, it, it, to me, at the end of the day, this really seems like a very clever investment in marketing. But yeah, you you got it. I mean, a director of taco relations. I mean, one of the cooler job titles I've seen out there. And Ron, I'm not going to lie to you. I, for a split second, I really did actually think about applying for this gig. But then I remember <laughs> I, I do have a full time job and some responsibilities yes, at home, do. so I, my time is limited. Uh, but man, oh man, I love tacos, and this seems right up my alley. Uh, uh, daily responsibilities. Listen to this. Daily responsibilities include keeping up to date on taco trends. I mean, Ron, they're taco trends. <laughs> Trolling TikTok for content. Developing content for a Taco Tuesday social media series. Taste tests. Traveling the country. I mean, this really does sound like a dream gig in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and ultimately, again, I think it is a very clever investment in marketing. One hundred thousand dollars at the end of the day for this company. Uh, very easy to justify given its scale and presence. In the in the the flavor and spice market, you mentioned that you have a full time job, so you're not going to go for it. I would imagine <laughs> the only person that could go for it is someone that is unemployed, or or do you quit your job, go for a four month hundred thousand dollar gig, and then worry about the consequences later? I don't know. I don't know. It seems like it's a temporary gig, so you got to think longer term. I think, right? There are a lot of freelancers out there and may jump on something like that. That's this. a good idea. My last question on this topic: If we're making you the czar of one food, Jason, what's it going to be? It's funny. I think I have one daughter who would argue I should be the czar of spaghetti and meatballs because I got a pretty wicked <laughs> recipe there. But I think honestly, I would be the czar of breakfast tacos. Believe it or not. Ah. I mean, breakfast tacos are terrific. We got a couple of different ways to do them here, and you know what goes well on breakfast tacos, Ron? McCormick owned Cholula sauce. Oh, nice, Andy. How about you? I, you know, I think I'm going to go with Oreo cookies. Just if I, had a, if I had a taste test one, believe it or not, we've been going through a lot of Oreos. They have a new Olympic flavor. Here. They have s'mores, brookie brownie, chocolate hazelnut, lemon, birthday cake, so many different flavors that I've just had to do, do some testing and evaluation. I think I'm going Oreo cookies. I've got to say pizza, even though it's cliche, because if I don't say pizza, I've got to feel like I'm cheating on pizza, and that just wouldn't be fair to pizza. That is true. All right, guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, a conversation with NYU professor of psychology Emily Balchettis on how successful people see the world. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Chocolate on my fingers, icing on my lips, sugar diabetes and blood on my hips. I keep the Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Ron Gross. In March 2020, Chris Hill interviewed NYU professor of psychology Emily Balchettis. Professor Balchettis had just written her first book entitled Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. Chris began his conversation by asking how out of all the disciplines in psychology, she chose this as the topic she wanted to tackle. I think what really got me was that I've been spending 20 years studying the science of motivation and uncovering those 
those obstacles that get in the way of uh, us meeting our goals, but also the surprising tactics that we have available to ourselves that we don't realize that can help us overcome those challenges. So that's a science that I've been studying for 20 years. And then that book, this book at this point in my life was really because I needed to figure out for myself what would work for me and what wouldn't. I had just given birth to my first child. Life was crazy for, for a reason that I talk about in the book. I decided this is the moment. And when my son was four months old, that I need to learn to play drums. Um, which was a a very um, uh, odd decision, I admit, from the outside. But there was just so much going on on my own plate that I wanted to apply the tactics that I'd been studying in the lab to myself and see what stuck. I'm definitely interested in the drums, but let me come back to that because... Some of the examples that you highlight in the book are are pretty interesting to me as someone who looks at businesses. Um, and obviously, when we're looking to be more successful, goal setting is involved. And one of the things that struck me was the way that a company like 3M, which is one of those businesses that people have their products in their home and office, whether they realize it or not. But the way 3M goes about goal setting was a little surprising to me. Yeah, it's it's really incredible because they set what might seem like unmeetable expectations for where sources of revenue should come from. That uh, that they hold uh, the expectation that 25% of their revenue should come from products that didn't exist five years ago. And since they set that goal, uh, they have hit that mark and exceeded it every year. So they're constantly innovating, um, and and that's what people have really been interested in is how. How do they do that? How from one year to the next year are they reinventing 30% of their business? That's that's the mark that they've actually hit, exceeding their goal. And part of it comes down to the culture that they create. And perhaps surprisingly is that they have a real openness and acceptance of the possibility of failure. So the idea the idea here is that if we just put on the table that some of our approaches are going to be missteps, that something that we might have invested in may not have legs or may not bear out, that if we're open about that, we can accept the possibility of defeat sooner, so call it faster. We can call in backup, asking for help or bringing in a team for consultation faster without a stigma uh, or without a feeling of embarrassment. Um, and and that really is, is part of the key to coming up with something that literally hasn't existed before. Well, speaking of embracing failure, um, one of the people you write about is Charlie Munger, uh, the famous, uh, not as famous as Warren Buffett, but the famous to investors, vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. Um, Munger always struck me as a smart guy. Um, I don't. I don't think that's particularly a, ground, a groundbreaking observation. But what was interesting to me was the amount of time that Charlie Munger focuses on failure, and in particular, his own failures, his own. I guess I don't want to say self-doubt, but it's almost like he comes up with an idea and then spends more time trying to shoot down the idea he just came up with. 
Yeah, exactly. What what I didn't know uh, before really diving into his personal story is that Charlie Munger is a college dropout. He went to school to study math. He switched to physics. He left the university before he completed his degree and then went on to become a meteorologist in the U.S. Army in World War II. When his military career was over, he went on to study law at Harvard Law School, and he graduated magna cum laude. But none of that education is is what he's built. His he and Warren Buffett have built their business on. Of course, it's finance and business and economics. Uh, and when you and when he explains, like, well, where did that knowledge come from? He never took a class in accounting or in economics. So how did he learn what he needed to make some of you know to build this empire? And he says it really is about his independent studies that he would set aside time every day from the beginning of career to just read as widely as he could, reading uh, the founding principles um, that our forefathers of America used to create um, the Constitution, for example, and um, and the principles um, that, that served as the founding force for Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, he was just reading like a crazy wide library, and what he was doing was trying to understand the principles of human decision-making before that field even existed. What he recognized was that there is just, um, there is a, a, a wealth of ways that our decisions can be made in error. And he himself believed that he contributed uh, to a lot of those errors in decision-making. And so he was really trying to come up with what are some principles that he could take from one decision to the next or across uh, different issues in business that he might be facing. And what are those principles that might lead his decision-making astray? And he'd spent decades formulating what he ultimately came up with as a list of 24. 24 issues or problems with decision-making that that could cloud his own and others' ability to come up with the right answer. Uh, he's distilled that down into 10 principles that he put into his book, Poor Charlie's Almanac. Um, and he uses that list as sort of uh, to cross-reference his own decisions before he, before he rolls them out, recognizing that principle number one is that his own ability to assess whether the decision is a good one or a bad one that his ability to assess that is circumspect. And so he should have some sort of external source of accountability, this checklist that he references. One of the things you write about is visual framing. Um, and I'm not going to try and explain what visual framing is, but the way it applies to business struck me because um, you end up writing about Walmart and their very deliberate strategy of keeping their shelves cluttered, which goes against some other examples that we've seen in business over the past decade where I'm thinking of a company like Best Buy, where part of Best Buy's turnaround involved a strategy of completely remaking their stores so that there was less clutter, they were more visually appealing. Um, but Walmart appears to have had great success doing the opposite. Mm-hmm. Walmart did have a period, too, where it tried that slimmed-down visual appearance and what they found was that that tactic totally backfired for them. They saw that sales decreased uh, during that period of time when they tried out that that new visual strategy, and so they went back to what they'd always been doing before, to um, you know, to to great financial ends. And the idea here uh, with the visual frame is that what falls within our line of sight 
nudges our choices, maybe with our awareness and often without our awareness. So, you know, what we see is what we act on. And the same goes with Walmart's strategy, which is if it's in sight, then people will be interested. It'll, it'll catch their eye and it might catch a, a bit of their wallet, too. So when they took those items off of the end caps or they took them off of the pallets in the middle of the aisles, there was less to catch people's eye, less that fell in their visual frame. And as a result, they purchased less. Your book adds to the growing body of evidence regarding the drawbacks of multitasking. Why do you think a lot of employers continue to state that's a quality they're looking for when they're seeking to hire? We live in a very busy world. Any one of us is uh, has probably far more on our to-do list than we're going to be able to get done in a day. And, and, and when we couple that with these really ambitious goals that we set for ourselves, for our teams, or for our organizations, there's just a lot to get done. And we think that multitasking is going to be the solution to that, where our needs maybe exceed our resources of time or personnel. And it seems like it's an appealing solution to this dilemma. In fact, when people multitask, they report enjoying the experience. They feel like they're productive. But actually, the science says that, for the most part, they're not. They are less effective uh, when they're multitasking than if they're able to maintain a single focus. Now, that makes multitasking sound like a bad idea. And that's that's not the take-home message that I want to put out there. Instead, multitasking is a tool that we should use wisely. So, it's sort of a, a two-edged sword here, that sometimes multitasking can, can be effective. For instance, when we're feeling understimulated, it's an area we have great expertise in, it's something we've done time and time again, you might you know, feel burnt out or understimulated. In that case, multitasking is effective. The more that we can sort of give our mind to juggle, it can actually be exciting and uh, invigorating. And so multitasking can actually help us to focus up, get more done, become more effective and more efficient, and engage our brain in a way that perhaps it didn't feel like it was before. And we can do that up until a point. There are benefits of multitasking in this space where we have expertise or the task demands aren't as great as as we can handle. But then there's this point where it starts to dip down again and where, where multitasking is actually ineffective. And that's a space that we might find ourselves in a lot uh, at work. Um, So there was a really cool study done, actually, of emergency room doctors, and they were looking at how effective are doctors as their caseload changes, you know, from uh, across the evening or across their shift. And what they found was that doctors, of course, do a really good job of handling their patients, but they can do an even better job as the patient caseload grows from one to two to three. There's downtime when you're working with any patient. You're waiting for a consultation from another doctor or you're waiting for lab results to come back in. And when their caseload increased, the doctors were actually more effective at at figuring out uh, how to take advantage of that downtime. It's not just emergency room doctors that have downtime, right? So this is an analogy that we can take to sort of any any space that we might be in where we're waiting for somebody to report back or we're waiting for new information to come in. What do we do with that downtime? And when we have a little bit more on our plate, we figure out ways to be creative about how to use that downtime. 
But as I was saying, uh, with, with the rest of us, these emergency room doctors had a tipping point. When their caseload got to about five or six patients, now that was just too much. That, uh, there wasn't a way to become more efficient with downtime. There just wasn't any more time. And so what they found, what, this, what these researchers found, was that around patient five or six, now each patient was waiting a lot longer than the ones, than, than the ones that um, had been there when the caseload was smaller. The patients were also returning to the emergency room within 24 hours at a higher rate, indicating that the doctors perhaps were misdiagnosing or not prescribing a course of treatment that would be sufficient to remedy the symptoms, and so the patients had to return. And so those were clear markers of, of uh, declines in performance and efficiency. So multitasking helped them ramp up and do their job better until they reached that tipping point, and then, and then there was a decline in multitasking wasn't effective. The tools that you write about in the book, how helpful were they when you were trying to learn how to play the drums? Well, I, what I like to, to say is that as a social psychologist, I have the science at my disposal. I know what the problems are. I know what some solutions are. But just like um, an MD doesn't protect a doctor from getting the sniffles, having that knowledge didn't protect me from making the same mistakes that I was investigating with the people who come through my lab. Last thing, and then I'll let you go. Uh, at The Motley Fool, we spend a lot of time focused on the importance of long-term investings. Um, that is a little bit more challenging to do um, uh, on days when, say, for example, the Dow Jones average drops a thousand points. Um, what is the best way to help people focus on long-term success? Mm-hmm. I'm going to offer two pieces of advice, and they might sound contradictory. They're two of the tools that I talk about in the book. One is narrowed focus. And when should we really keep our eyes on the prize? Um, and when, what will that benefit? And then the second is a wide bracket, almost the opposite. When do we take in the big picture? So when we see blips like this, like this drop in the Dow Jones is a blip, it's going to, it's going to remedy itself. This isn't going to last for months or for years. There is a tendency for us to overreact to those momentary blips. These blips will write themselves. But if we, if we are just focused on what happened today and we react to that, then we might make a decision that we could regret in a, in a week or a month from now uh, when, when we see this, um, this trend shift. So by narrowly focusing on today's market, uh, we, we might make a mistake that we might make a mistake. We might make a choice that we regret. But, but zooming out, looking at the bigger picture, looking at the trajectories of our investments over time, um, I think we'll find that what we've invested in has some staying power, and maybe we should just stick with it. Now, the other thing about the narrowed focus is that it can be helpful when we're talking about a goal that we have that might be in the far-off future, say a year from now, two years from now. Sometimes people have a hard time uh, connecting today with that distant future, and what we can do is by Instead of focusing on the market today, we can focus on what our goals are for a year from now or two years from now, and we can contract that space. What, who is going to benefit that, uh, in, in the future? Who's going to benefit at that one-year outmark or that two-year outmark? And it can help us realize that the choices we make today will have consequences for that far-off future by keeping our eyes on the prize. Emily, I know you're busy. I really appreciate your time, and congrats on the book. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you and your audience. Coming up, we'll share some stocks on our radar. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Night in the 
As always, people on this program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Ron Gross here with Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Okay, guys, time for some stocks on our radar, and I'll bring in our man Dan Boyd for a quick question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What do you got? Yeah, just looking at App Harvest ticker H A P P H. Uh, remember, this is the ag tech company focused on building those controlled environment agriculture uh, centers or smart greenhouses. Uh, led by founder Jonathan Webb. Just some recent headlines: the company recently joined the Russell 2000 index, which is encouraging. They get some additional exposure there. Uh, recently broke out ground on its fourth and fifth indoor farms, on track to meet its goal of 12 of those uh, in indoor farms there by 2025, and that's going to be key. They continue to lock down financing to fuel this growth, which is encouraging. Lenders are seeing the bigger picture. Investors are seeing the bigger picture. I like that, Ron. You know why I like that? Because not only have I recommended the stock, Ron, <laughs> but this week, I actually bought shares of App Harvest myself. Nice. Dan, you got a question about App Harvest? Yeah, you know, I brought this up last time. I think we had App Harvest on the show. What is this name, App Harvest? What are they doing? Like this, me, it means nothing, App Harvest. Come on. Well, I mean, I think it's just the merging of technology and agriculture, right? It's a play on words, so to speak, Dan. But it's it's ag tech. It's a thing. It really it really exists. Andy, time is short. You're up. What are you looking at? I'm looking at Intuitive Surgical, the maker of robotic surgery systems for minimally invasive surgery. A hundred thirteen billion dollar company, um, almost five billion in cash on the on the balance sheet. Dan, known for its Da Vinci systems, really got hit over the last say year or so, a little bit over the last eighteen months, twenty four months from the COVID pandemic as hospitals and surgery centers and doctors uh, basically shut down elective surgery. So, so Da Vinci helps with things like bariatric, gynecology, urology procedures. Um, so, those now have started to see some ramp back up. So, we're starting to see the procedures increase in this wonderful company, very profitable, exceptionally high operating margins, generates a lot of cash. It does have a forward PE of 70, Dan. So, it's a little bit more on the expensive side. Stock is now at an all time high. So, I'm looking to see what they are saying about the surgeries. We need to see that volume continue to pick up. Dan? You know, the word invasive is not great to hear. <laughs> However, the word minimally right in front of invasive makes me feel pretty good. Yeah, that's the way you want to go. If of the two, you want to go minimally invasive, Dan. Which one are you putting on your watch list, Dan? You know what? This is the second time we've had App Harvest on the show in recent memory. So I think I'm going to go with App Harvest, actually, because I want to learn more about it. At ICE. Well, that's all we have time for, guys. That's going to do it for this week's of Motley Fool Money. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.